All right, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Wit and Whiskey cast. I guess we could say this is the first episode of year two. I mean, we're still here in season three. We're, we're, we're rolling strong there, but I guess this is the second calendar year. You know, it's like when you work in an office and you have calendar year and fiscal year. We're, we're in the second calendar year. This would be our fiscal year. Come now. We're still in 2021. Fine. Okay. That, uh, as you heard, ladies and gentlemen, is the sound of needless butting in, so it can only be our co-host, DJ Gagnon. Say hello again, DJ. Hi, everybody. It's great to see you again. <laughs> God damn it. I'm looking uh, at you out of your headphones. <laughs> yes. Uh, DJ actually is Jeff Bezos. Uh, how was you. space? How did that go? Was it cool? Uh, it's the, the penis rocket did its job. Yeah. <laughs> He didn't take me in the penis rocket. I was very upset. Uh, I wanted to go, but he, he took that cowboy lady instead. I was a little hurt. Mm. Uh, but okay, anyway, and wouldn't you know who won the pony? We have a third chair this evening. We have a guest for the second time, fifth time overall, and second time in studio here in the 1821 studio. We have a guest, and we had to put pants on this week to record because she's a lady. That's uh, sexist. I, I really don't care either way. <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's nothing she hasn't seen before. Work gets fun. <laughs> anyway, uh, joining us this evening, we have uh, my colleague at the Historical Society, a wonderful individual, a gamer, an archaeologist, an intelligent person, although she's a little lazy, as we were discussing earlier today, especially when it comes to gaming. Uh, my right arm at the Historical Society, here to talk about Pathfinder, Changeling, and a whole bunch of alternative RPGs, Miss Allison Earle. Was the nicest introduction he's ever given me. Wow, I'm so flattered. Well, I have to be nice because amongst her many, 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 many tasks she has with historical society, she has the unenviable and quite frankly uncompletable job of attempting to make me look good to the public. <laughs> so I have to be nice to her. <laughs> Allie, I hope you're paid well. <laughs> hey, oh, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> I mean, it's it's all right. We got her off food stamps. We, no, no, that's that's not cool. All right. Uh, paid time off. <laughs> yeah, we got her paid time off now, and you know she she gets three meals now. We gave her a lunch hour, so that's yes. good. Uh, apparently, you're supposed to do that. I wasn't. I thought you just worked eight hours a day, but apparently, you're supposed to get a lunch. So, all right, this is the part of the show usually we say in the format notes, uh, banner amongst the boys, and usually I throw it to DJ, and he just stutters, because even we, though we've been doing this for a year plus now, he never knows how to answer the question. So I'm going to throw it to you first, Allie. Oh, God. What have you been up to this week? Uh, we had the road rally today. We did have the road rally today. But aside from that, I've been playing Genshin Impact and uh, Control, so oh, it's been fun. Control is so good. <laughs> It is. It's, I'm so bad at it. I'm so bad at first-person shooters, but I, I love it so much. It's so creeps. Right? Oh, my God. Excellent. <laughs> Control is one of those many games that I own, and I have not turned on yet. Turn it on! What are you waiting for? It, yeah. I, I'm playing Mad Max. I like Mad Max. It's a terrible game. I'm going to beat it soon. I'm like 60% through. Maybe Control will be next. Probably not, but maybe. I'm judging you hard. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so Tuesday shit. Like, what? <laughs> if you could see the look she's giving me across the table here in the studio, it's it's very judgmental. <laughs> what about you, buddy? What'd you do this week? Uh, so it was a good weekend. We um, 
this was the first year, first time since uh, 2019 that the Sunapi Craft Fair uh, happened. So uh, up here in New England, we have a, we have a nice tall ski mountain called Mount Sunapi, and and there's a a big organization in New Hampshire called the New Hampshire League of Craftsmen. And once a year in the summer, they do a giant craft fair, and it's just the most bougie craft fair. Um, and so, oh my God. We, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Uh, and, and we love going up there. We, we get to, uh, see all the things I, I buy the, the fair out of soap and, uh, it's just amazing, but it's like the only place in the world you can find like hipster honey, like lotions and weird infused olive oils next to like blacksmithing and like wood turned lamps. And it goes from like you know, a $30, like, cosmetic thing to a $5,000 wood-turned lamp. Oh, my God. That's so cool, though. It, it is. It's very cool. And it's, uh, the these craftsmen take their stuff very seriously. And it's really cool to, like, talk to them and, and, and learn about their process. Um, l- last year, the, the kind of, like, the height of the coolest thing I've ever seen at the fair is somebody did, like, their a handmade electric guitar. And it was wow. the coolest thing I've ever seen. That's, was it like made of wood? Yeah. Oh, no. And like they, they carved it and polished it and sanded it. And they had like, uh, it, it was in this exhibition tent and they had the guitar and then all around it on the wall was like how he made it. And holy crap. Like it was just hours and hours and hours to make this thing. And it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, Mark. Yeah, I mean that that sounds fucking fantastic. Yeah, it, it was it was incredibly cool. So, um, I, I got some cool stuff. Got some. Um, it's like a weird time to be buying like embroidered things, but I got like a really nice scarf, and now I can't wear it for like two more months. <laughs> that is a very DJ problem. It is. Yeah. Uh, so, what about you, buddy? Well, I mean, before I start, can we just? I think we need to make it official here. I think season three may be the bougiest season on record. Oh, yeah. All right, just I'm glad we cleared that up. We bougie. We bougie here. We, we, very, we very bougie. As Allie's going to get to in her uh, drink review later, okay. we are beyond bougie. I didn't even dip into the well, so we might all be bougie. Oh, we, we are all very bougie tonight if you didn't dip into the well. <laughs> No, as Ali said, we had our, our road rally today, and that went pretty well, all things considered. Although, annoyingly, you know, we're, the rally is over, the teams are back, we've handed out the awards. We sent the old man to fetch the pizza that we ordered for everyone. Uh, he gets the pizza, he comes back, we're sitting, we're enjoying pizza, and a local television station rolls up, and you literally have never seen... I was never on the Titanic, I've never seen rats flee a sinking ship. <laughs> But I saw people running with paper plates of pizza back towards their cars so they would not be on television today. <laughs> that, was in, that was interesting. Wow. Uh, we also, uh, Allie and I and uh, her boyfriend Zach, we dipped into the, we put our toes back into the proverbial collectible card game water. We've purchased some bundles of Journeys in the Forgotten Realms. Oh Magic my God, Gathering. I can talk about this. Yes. And uh, I was actually just saying upstairs as we were opening our packs before we came to record. Uh, you know, as I told Nick a couple of days ago, magic is basically my cigarettes. I have quit and started playing again probably 15 or 20 times since 1995 or so. Yeah. But 
even the last couple of times I've gotten back into it, it's just been sort of, oh, hem, ha, and this and that. But opening the packs today, knowing what was what's possibly out there and getting some of the references on the cards and some of the artwork and things, it really brought back the genuine fun feel of going with your friends to the card store. Somebody's parents had to take you because you're too small to drive and spending all your allowance money and buying a bunch of packs of magic and coming back home and just spreading the cards out all over the place. And, you know, even right down to the old man was here today. He's just shaking his head like, you're still fucking playing this? Really? God damn. And just, you know, even that, that was the same look of disgust he used to give us 25 <laughs> years ago. So uh, I'm very excited about that. I got some good draws. I got my gelatinous cube, so nice. I'm happy. And I got the older artwork style uh, mimic. Nice. I actually have two. I might send one to Iggy in an envelope and not tell him. Oh, no. um, just because I'm a prick. Oh, no. He's going to kill you. He probably <laughs> will. Uh, but it's a chance I'm willing to take. I do have a foil copy of the treasure chest for you, good sir. Oh, nice. Thank you. And I have the oversized novelty D20 that goes with it. I got an extra one of those, so that's got your name on it too, buddy. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, my my favorite thing about this set are the full-color art D&D stat cards. Yep. Uh, I, I, My buddy and I did the same sort of thing. We, we got two uh, set booster boxes. We sat there opening them all day, and I gave him... The deal was he got all of my extras because I was putting them in a binder uh, as long as I could keep the art cards. Well, that's oh, fair. That's, that's a really good deal. Yeah. And, I mean, he actually, like, he constructs decks out of this stuff. I bought the four commander decks. Those are the only cards I'm going to play from this set. So, like, I, it's, like, commander decks, and I want to, like, complete the full set in my binder over time. So I, I was like, I just want one of everything. And I gave him this huge stack of extras to build decks with. Oh Here, you go, you go uh, create destruction. <laughs> we also, it was kind of cool with the bundles. Each bundle came with three of the dungeon cards, but they're oversized. They're like index card size. Oh, wow. So those are kind of fun, too, to play with. So I have them upstairs. Probably that's going to be tomorrow. I'm off tomorrow. Uh you know, depending on how hungover this one sitting across from me gets me tonight, uh, we're going to, uh, I'm going to sleeve all, everything tomorrow, and we'll go from there. But nice. No, it's, it's been good. Yeah. It's a great set. It really is. I have so many, I have so many ideas for decks. Yeah, we're actually, when yeah. we're done recording here, we're going to go upstairs and do a draft, so. Nice. My deck is already completed. I'm sorry, I was, I was the only one that wanted, that was that was going to do a TV interview as you all <laughs> fled when this poor sweet girl in a mini dress that I think was painted on, bless her. A child. I mean, no, it looked, it, I'm not even making a sexist joke here, it looked uncomfortable. That's how snug this dress was on her. And she came and is lugging this camera because, you know, all the local TV stations during the coronavirus have cut their budget, so they no longer have cameramen or anything. They just send the reporters out and they have to gaff their own shit, they have to carry their own shit. And she comes over and is like, hey, I'm here with TV. And everyone's like, hey, fuck you. And then just leaves. Uh, so, no, I'm sorry. I was being nice to the nice girl that we came. Pizza. <laughs> yeah, she didn't nice. take pizza. She took a water, though. It's she actually toured the 1821 studio. She liked our setup. Oh, excellent. She said, do you record a podcast in here? I said, we record two, actually. So she was all about that. Mark, we're not so we got, we got a new podcast. listener. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. All right, well, in the spirit of ladies first, and I know you've been practicing literally all day. No. Here we go. It's time, darling. Oh, God. What are you drinking? 
One. Okay. <laughs> She's been practicing all day. I've been practicing. I'm good okay. with the alcohols. <laughs> I like yes. the liquors. Okay, so I'm drinking Crystal Head Triple Herkimer Diamond Filtered Newfoundland Deep Aquifer Pure Spirit Vodka. Sweet Jesus. <laughs> she may have been watching Dan Aykroyd interviews all day today. <laughs> it's Dan Aykroyd's vodka. Whenever he has the opportunity, he will plug this vodka. And I really like it. Um, okay, so it's about fifty dollars, because of course it is. Because we bougie. Because we bougie. Yes, and it comes in a skull, which is always fun. What else do I say about this, Mark? Well, it's vodka, so it's hard to review the taste. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a really smooth vodka. It's mostly just slightly sweet, and then the taste of alcohol. And you can't really get much smoother than that. <laughs> that's fair that's she's, my stunning review she's not lying about Dan Aykroyd plugging it any, any way he can uh, <laughs> Allison and I once had to go to a work conference in Philadelphia and so I was on the way down I was driving and I was playing a podcast uh, a rival podcast that we won't plug on this show but they were interviewing Dan Aykroyd because they're like big time <laughs> and in the middle of everything five or six times he just stopped and word for word read off the ad that Allie just read off yeah um, yeah. didn't, uh, didn't our friend AJ a few years ago make a cocktail with Crystal Head and, uh, Ecto Cooler that he called the Tobin Spirit Guide? He yes. did indeed. <laughs> Had I remembered, I would have brought a can of high C, but I forgot. There is literally an unopened case upstairs. You should have said something to me. I would have given you a can. Well, that's what I'm going to be drinking after the podcast. Amazing. So we're not that bougie. <laughs> All right, buddy. What about you? You're up. Uh, so I went local. Um, this uh, this distillery is out of Seabrook, New Hampshire, which I think is the closest uh, distillery I've ever done. Uh, it's the Smoky Quartz Distillery, uh, and I'm drinking their V5 bourbon. Uh, it, it is a uh, – it, it's good. It's very woody, um, and, and it's all uh, – the, the distillery is, uh, it's all about veterans. So that, that's the cool thing about this is that the, it's local, it, it's, it's veteran run, and, and um, you, you got to love that, uh, support the troops and all that. Um, the, it, it, it is a bourbon whiskey, but Mark, it's 100% made with locally sourced corn. No wheat, no rye. Yes! So I, I was thinking of you when I picked this up because you, you had been trying that clear uh, corn whiskey. Um, <laughs> and so I, I had to try it. And it's pretty good. It's, uh, it's got some sweet notes. Um, it, it definitely has that really heavy wood smell. Um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, Woodford Reserve. Okay. Uh, with that kind of really woody taste. Uh, but it's good. It's got, uh, it kind of finishes off uh, warm, but it doesn't have the crazy burn. That's always good. Now, I have to ask, because you brought up Woodford Reserve. I know your thoughts on Woodford Reserve. Uh, are you rating this higher or lower? I, I'm definitely rating this higher. It's, it's, sweet. it's got that bourbon sweet edge to it. Uh, it's very dark. Uh, it's like a burnt orange gold color. And while it does have the wood taste, 
I feel like it balances better than Woodford Reserve. Where Woodford Reserve really just felt like I was sucking on wood chips, and this is it, it's got uh, it's got some vanilla in there. It tastes a little creamy, a little sweet. It, it tastes like it should feel syrupy on the tongue, but it doesn't. Um, and it, it finishes in a really interesting way. It's just kind of it's warm. It's got a long finish on it, and then done. No burn, really, at the end. Um, and that's what I kind of like about it, is there's been so many whiskeys I've reviewed lately that just, the burn just keeps building the longer you're sipping it out of the glass. And this is just, it's very mellow, which I, I, I like. Um, it's 90 proof, uh, so it, it, it's up there, but it's definitely not the highest proof we've drank so far. No, but that's, I mean, 90 proof, that gets you in the door. I mean, that's your, you're not messing around with a 90 proof uh, bourbon there. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, local, it's Seabrook, and they do a lot of other distillations too. They have their own vodka, their own rum, uh, and their own moonshine. So uh, if you're closer to me here in the Shire Studios, uh, check it out, Smoky Quartz in, in uh, Southern Seabrook. Now, what's that run a bottle, roughly? Um, I, I keep looking up the price for it. I think it was like maybe 40 bucks. Okay. So not terrible. Not terrible. Yeah. Yeah. It, it wasn't terrible at all. Um, it, it was pretty accessible. I don't think it was top shelf either. Uh, so it, it's definitely worth it. Uh, and you can get small bottles of smoky quartz too. Uh, it, you can get the, the, uh, 375 mil instead of the 750. Oh, well that's good. If you don't want to take the plunge too hard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you, you can get a, a tall bottle of it. You can get a full fifth of it for uh, 53 So I think I paid between 35 and 40 That's okay. excellent. That yeah. really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. not bad at all. Yeah, I like trying to find really nice whiskeys that are under 50 bucks because I feel like $50 is that price point of it's getting too expensive to be your daily driver. What about you, buddy? What are you drinking? Well, I'm also bougie today. Uh, since we had the road rally, I decided to just tap in to my collection of nips because I did say that we were gonna, I was going to try to do some more nips this season. Uh, and I realized that I had an unopened bottle of a single malt in nip form. So we're going to drink some bog water today. Now, DJ, I mentioned to you, well, I think it was off air, but apparently you were recording everything I said for a good 10 minutes before we started <laughs> recording, recording. Uh, but I mentioned to you earlier that I think this is bog water you may like. Yeah. And I stand by this. What I am drinking today is uh, McClellan's 12-year-old Highland single malt scotch whiskey. No E this time, so I can actually get the thing right. <laughs> but it is a double cask. Now, we'll get, to, we'll get some of the nuts and bolts out of the way first. You had 100% corn whiskey for your mash bill. This is 100% malted barley Ooh, for the I mash bill. I love that malt. The uh, age statement, as I said, is 12 years. It is uh, 43% alcohol by volume, so we're not quite, we're at 86 proof, we're not quite at 90 proof. Uh, I have a nip, i be honest with you, I don't remember what the hell I paid for this, I bought this however the hell long ago, but it's about $65 a bottle if you want to get a proper bottle of it. Oh, wow. But... It's double cask. Now, there's a common misconception with this is that it's two different types of casks, like what, uh, what they used to be used for. The, everybody always says, oh, one of them was bourbon and then one of them was sherry. That's not actually true. They're both sherry casks. 
And the reason why it's different is one is American oak and one is a treated European style wood barrel. So you get the best of both sides of the pond. This is smooth as all hell. It has the wonderful malted taste to it. And it kind of sweetens out in the middle. Like on your nose, boom, you hit that malt and you get a little spice. You get a little nutmeg. You get a little just zing, almost like a peppery taste. Then it mellows out in the middle. Brown sugar, some like almost orangey, zesty things. Then a little bit more spice. Then at the end, you get another hint of malt. And then you get a good, solid scotch burn. And you do taste a lot of the wood, but you don't taste any smoke. And you do get some of that sherry, the fruity sherry, all throughout it. So this is pretty good. I know a lot of, like, hardcore scotch drinkers, if you Google this online, the reviews for it are pretty shit. Because they're like, ah, this isn't what a single malt should be. And normally I agree. Normally I want that big, peaty, you know, boggy, just fill a cup with dirt and twigs and hand it to me. Yeah, get the fuck out. Because Mark hates himself. I mean, this is true. Actually, (laughs) he still he works with me. (laughs) (laughs) But I actually really like this, much like the Sexton. See, again, DJ, like we talked about last week, you're getting me out of my comfort zone. And much like the Sexton with the single malt Irish whiskey that had the sherry finish, I really like this too. So, I mean, sixty five bucks is a big entry level for a full bottle. But if you can find the nip, I want to say it was ten or twelve dollars for the nip, if I remember right. Uh, give it a shot. It's pretty damn good. You know, it took me two and a half seasons, but I can confidently say my favorite kind of whiskey is anything cascaged at this point. Just just anything that's like sherry or port cascaged. It just gives it a, a, just a delightful edge to it that I really enjoy. Yeah, I mean, and I can, drinking this, I can really see why, actually. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to mix it up this week. Let's uh, do uh, do tools of the trade first. I don't want to go two in a row. Okay. I So talking about rounding out flavor profiles, right? You know, how I like cask-aged whiskeys and how that kind of port or sherry cask aging uh, get, gives your whiskey another dimension. Uh, that's kind of what we're talking about today in tools of the trade. We're talking about bitters. Uh, yes. Yeah, I... Uh, I Almost didn't do this today because I really wanted to get the research done, but I, I ended up having enough time. And bitters are part of making a complex, well-balanced cocktail. Uh, and any bar worth their salt has you know <laughs> half a dozen bitters on hand. Um, you, you know you'll see the same four or five in every bar. You know your Peychauds, your Angostura's, your Orange. Uh, sometimes you'll see a chocolate. Usually you'll see like maybe like a celery or a, or a cassia or um, you know, just, just there's a lot of herbal ones. Um, just so you know, we have like none of these at St. Conrad's. <laughs> I mean, I know you want to apply and all, but we have like Angostrusa and that's it. <laughs> I mean, that's fine. I mean, you're going to generally what I see in bars is you'll and you'll see the same three bottles in, in, in standard bars, right? You'll see Angostura. You might see Peychauds and you might see orange. Um, but, I mean, most of the time, it depends on the bar, honestly. There has been, like, a fairly recent cocktail revolution in the last, like, 10 years. So uh, any bars that are fairly well-established and have been for a while may not have really leaned into this kind of cocktail culture. Uh, but anywho, uh, 
bitters. They're fantastic, right? We, we talked about simple syrup, and we talked about how to kind of uh, use simple syrup to add the sweetness into your, your cocktails. And that was a, uh, like five episodes ago. Uh, bitters add, well, it's a bittersweet flavor profile. Uh, bitters are, today, they're considered uh, an alcoholic non-beverage ingredient, so they can be sold uh, outside of liquor stores. You can buy bitters generally at the grocery store. Uh, and I don't recommend drinking them on their own. Uh, <laughs> no, God, no. Not even I do that. Um, Not even the chocolate bitters? Uh, no, uh, even chocolate bitters, because it's very, it leans into the cacao side of chocolate and not really the... You know the the sweet uh, the candy that we all know and love. Um, my favorite. <laughs> yeah, Allie does like a good bitter dark chocolate. As do I, if we're being honest. Well, but. Uh, Allie, if you'd like, uh, pour yourself a glass of chocolate bitters next time. Uh, I have to. <laughs> we'll see what you think. Uh, so bitters uh, bitters have their historical or- origin all the way back in ancient Egypt. Um, the bitters that in the kind of uh, the, the culture that gave rise to bitters started with uh, infusing medicinal herbs into wine uh, to, to kind of make these fortified wines um, uh, to drink at, you know, parties. <laughs> and also to kind of, you know, heal people and, and crap like that. And probably back then it would have been like a, a bitter version of a mulled wine. Uh, and over time... Uh, you know, it, it, they, they continued this practice into the Middle Ages and uh, they started making, you know, fortified liquor drinks and they didn't really balance it well. There wasn't a lot of, you, you know, you, you had the bitter and then you had the, the liquor and there wasn't a lot of like sour and sweet to balance out those two. So those drinks probably were just fucking terrible. Um, but Damn it, that one puts hair on your chest. <laughs> get out. Uh so current brands of bitters, like Peychaud's and Angostura bitters, uh, they were originally branded as patent medicines in the 1800s. Uh, of course they were. Yeah, uh, and I, I fucking talk about patent medicines. <laughs> but um, a lot we of We don't them, have the time, lad. We don't. <laughs> we definitely don't. Um, so a, a, it seems like a lot of bitters had their origins in this patent medicine craze. And uh, if you look at a bottle, specifically, if you look at the bottles for Peychaud's and Angostura, they look old, like old-timey medicine bottles. Uh, the companies have not changed uh, the bottle labels at all. Uh, and it's kind of fascinating. Um, uh, it, uh, uh, fun fact, uh, Angostura bottles uh, have labels that are like maybe like a 25% too big for the bottle. Yep. Uh, and uh, th- it's been that way forever. And there's a couple of apocryphal stories as to why. One is that when you dash with an Angostura bottle and you tip it back up, uh, you might get some drippage and the label catches the drips. Um, or uh, it was just the, a printing mistake when Angostura first started printing bottle labels and they never changed it because it was iconic. Uh, I so mean, to be fair, that's how Flow Blue China started. Yeah. So the blue flowed for for whatever reason. Uh, so That's now crazy. these bitters are sold as digestives and cocktail ingredients. Uh, there are some bitters. So to your point, Allie, there are some bitters uh, that are drank by themselves, uh, like maybe on the rocks or neat. Chocolate was not listed as one, but you can certainly try. <laughs> Sorry. It. 
the the uh, one example that popped out on the list for me that I thought would be an interesting thing to try in the podcast at some point, Mark, was Jepson's Malort. Okay. Oh. Um, I know nothing about bitters. Oh, good because Jepson's Malort. Because <laughs> you're bitter enough as it is, yeah. you don't need it. You don't need to add any. <laughs> uh, so the, the general purpose of a bitter is to engage an additional primary taste to balance out the cocktail flavors and create a more complex cocktail. Um, the, the big three, like, like I said, are, are Angostura, Peychaud's, and Orange. Um, and and the, the kind of examples as to how they work, you know, Angostura in a Manhattan balances out the sugar in the, in the bourbon or the sugar okay. in the rye. Uh, and and it's, it's meant to offset the sweetness. If you had a, a Manhattan without the bitters, it would just taste like sweet whiskey. Yeah, it's it's a lot closer to an old fashioned than a Manhattan. Yeah, oh. uh, orange bitters in an old fashioned uh, not only do the same thing that Ango does in in a Manhattan, but it also complements the expressed orange peel at the end. Um, that's why I tend to like orange bitters instead of Ango in my uh, in my old fashions. And that's that's always nice. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, the cocktail I drank last week, the Sazerac, um, you use an absinthe rinse, which in this case I would consider absinthe, even though it is kind of a, uh, a you know, an herb saint liqueur. Um, I use it like a bitter. I have it in a, in a, in a dasher bottle. Um, That's and an interesting idea. Yeah, it, the absinthe and the peychaudes complement and contrast with the lemon and the rye. And... Uh, to reward you for your interest in chocolate bitters, Allie, uh, there is a uh, recipe that I found. I, I can't pronounce this. It's called uh, Teotihuacan or something like that. I think it's named after like a Latin American ancient city or something. Oh, um, she'll probably be able to pronounce it. Uh, yeah. It's not Tenochtitlan, but... Yeah, yeah. It could have, it could be. Um, <laughs> but uh, to to give you the recipe, it's uh, two ounces of dark rum, uh, three quarter ounces of sweet vermouth, and two dashes of chocolate bitters. Which sounds really good to me. Yeah, it does. Oh no. Yeah, and I've definitely found chocolate bitters uh, being used a lot in Mexican cocktails. I've seen them in tiki culture a lot. Uh, most of the time when you buy it, it's, it's actually labeled like Aztec chocolate bitters. Oh, no. Yeah. That was going to be my next question, actually. I was like, this sounds very Aztec, but okay. Yeah, it's a thing. Um, She's furiously right. Googling as we speak. Here. I am furiously Googling. I mean, like, there is there's two sets this. of smoke now. There's a smoke coming off my pipe, and there's a smoke coming off her keyboard. <laughs> Uh, God damn! I, I'll uh, I'll message it to Mark so uh, you can see it in the background here. Um, Excellent. And to kind of close out tools of the trade with bitters, uh, there are a lot of different uh, digestive or additional ingredients that don't really well classify in cocktail culture. You know, we've you always have your your sugars, your liquor, your citrus, your herbs, um, but uh, the bitters. Uh, have kind of like a younger hipster brother called the shrub, uh, which is uh, vinegar-based. Uh, they are definitely different, and you use them for different purposes because the, the vinegar serves a, a slightly different purpose than, uh, than the, the time, time, bitterness. Time out, but time, time, out, time out. Vinegar. 
Yeah. In, in, in cocktails. That yeah. sounds horrendous. And like that pickle shot that people like. No, pickleback is delicious. Gross. Oh, no. no. But I've, uh, I've made cocktails with a well-made shrub before, and it is really good. Um, but I feel like shrubs are kind of like, yeah, I, I feel like shrubs are kind of like, um, they're kind of like egg whites and drinks. Like it it takes good. Like I think they're really good, but it does kind of take some wrapping your head around. Um, I, I usually make shrubs with, uh, red wine or apple cider vinegar, if that makes it any better. I definitely, I don't do it with white vinegar. Okay. That's a little better. A little, little bit. bit. <laughs> yeah. But that is okay. Tools of the Trade bitters this week. Uh, before we jump into whiskey news, I, you set the table too perfectly. I have to jump into a brief aside just because she's here. Uh, we went to another conference years and years ago out in State College, Pennsylvania, and they had a whiskey bar. And yes. I pretty much just told Allie, hey, guess what we're doing tonight when the conference <laughs> is over? We're going to the whiskey bar. I picked ramen, so you picked the whiskey. Is that, that's sense. true. That's true. We did go to a ramen shop first. But, uh, ramen and whiskey, 10 out of 10. <laughs> uh, you know, it was a proper uh, proper whiskey bar. You know, they had a multi-page menu of, you know, bourbons and ryes and Irishes and this and that. And you ordered a single or a double, and you ordered it either neat or on the rocks. And they brought them out in the little tasting glasses. Well, Allie ordered a brandy sour, and the guy's like, we make them with egg whites, is that okay? And she looked at him at first like he had steam and turds hanging from her mouth. She had never heard of such a thing. And I was like, oh, wait a minute, you guys use egg whites here? Shit, I might change my order. And she's like, wait, this is a thing people do? And I said, look, order your drink. If you don't like it, I'll finish it. And we had a convert that night. Oh, yeah. Oh, I dream of that brandy sour. It was amazing. Uh, if we if we ever get together in person, Allie, I make a mean Pisco sour, and they are very good. Oh, oh that sounds amazing. <laughs> DJ's only like five and a half hours away. I'm just saying. I mean, five and a I've half a hours, car. and I have every bottle. He does. I got a car. It's officially mine. Like, you do. You own a car now. I own one. We can do <laughs> I can go five hours. I, I have an air mattress. Oh, we better. And I think you and Holly would actually get along pretty well. Yeah? Yeah, I think you would. I always like my friends. Uh, but all right, we'll get into whiskey news. Now, one of the rules DJ and I set out in the podcast, which we didn't actually talk about last week when we did the year on uh, retrospective, we didn't talk about any of the rules because there's not many. But one of the rules DJ and I set out with the podcast is we're not going to get political for obvious reasons. Yeah. But we're going to flirt with politics here. <laughs> but bear with me, because this is just, this, no, this is too good. This uh-huh. is just, uh-huh. this is too good of a story. I felt that sigh, by the way. <laughs> I feel you. This is, this is too good of a story. What is the biggest thing going on in the world of whiskey right now? There is a bottle of whiskey missing. <laughs> what? There is a, a $5,800 bottle of Japanese whiskey. Again, no E. We're all with the no E's this week. <laughs> And it was given to former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. And since this was an actual gift from the Japanese government to a United States government official, it has to be tracked. If you read the Constitution and a lot of laws and everything, we can't take titles and gifts and everything. Like That's why there's no knights or anything in America. There's very specific rules on gifts to government officials, especially when they come from a foreign government. So because of this, this government has to be tracked. Well, it's gone. And okay, that's all well and good, but 
because of all this and all the rules, now the State Department, the current State Department here in 2021, has to conduct a formal government investigation to find this bottle of whiskey. <laughs> so right now, the feds are looking for a 58 bottle of Japanese whiskey. It was supposedly given to the secretary on June 24th, 2019, on a joint conference in Saudi Arabia. However, uh, Secretary Pompeo has no recollection of receiving the bottle and does not have any knowledge as to what happened to it. He's also unaware of any formal inquiry into its whereabouts. He has no idea what the disposition was of this bottle of whiskey. That's what his lawyer says in a statement. Um, there's also a gray area in that you can only accept gifts of about $400 technically. And of course, this bottle of whiskey is almost six grand and yada, yada, yada. So right now, our tax dollars, ladies and gentlemen, are in part going to look for a $6,000 bottle of whiskey. I think we should all, if they find it and if it's unopened, they should get an eyedropper and everybody should get so many drops. <laughs> everybody over the age of 21, you know, I don't want another stimulus. I yeah. just want some of this $6,000 whiskey. You want a single drop of $6,000 whiskey. I'm not a greedy man. <laughs> um, I just want to try it. So, so that's whiskey news. I just had to laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's all these kind of little fun different things. There's a story of Kennedy just before he signed the embargo on Cuba, which, of course, the Cuban embargo is in the news again. But just before he signed the embargo on Cuba, President Kennedy ordered over 2,000 Cuban cigars. And he did not sign the... No, this is actually true. And he did not sign the embargo until the plane landed in Miami. That way, he had enough cigars, which ended up being for the rest of his life because they shot him. But he had enough cigars and, you know, screw the little guy. And that's why we can't get Cubans. But that, that's a whole other thing. So just little things like this amuse me uh, in the grand scheme of things. But if you, if you Google Whiskey News this week, that is literally the only thing that's coming up. Uh, the Washington Post, the Huff Post, uh, Boston Globe, Philadelphia Inquirer, just everyone is running with this story because it's be just fair, so random. How do you lose a $6,000 bottle of whiskey? Yeah, if I had a $6,000 bottle of whiskey, I would know where that motherfucker is every waking minute of every waking day. Right? I, oh, my God. It would be like, hello, welcome to my house, and this is my $6,000 yeah. bottle of whiskey. I, I would it, build a plinth. behind lasers and glass. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh, my God. You have to, like, matrix your way over. Um but no, so I don't know. So if you know where said whiskey is, uh, I, I don't uh, recommend, ooh, excuse me, I don't recommend <laughs> snitching, but uh, maybe tell somebody that isn't the government so they can go get it. I don't know. <laughs> maybe uh, but tell the us here at the Wit and Whiskey Cast. Yes. You can reach us at thewitandwhiskeycast at gmail.com. Let us know if you've got the $6,000 bottle of whiskey. We'd like to try some of it. Uh, also, can I speak to the Japanese government for a minute here? We won't lose your gifts. <laughs> we will use your gifts. Here in the uh, Whiskey Cast, we, we will try your gift, and we will help signal boost that distillery. Yes, we are influencers. Yes, to our four <laughs> listeners. <laughs> God damn it, anyway. All right. I think, I think five. I think it converted one of my friends to listen to. See? Amazing. <laughs> We're growing exponentially. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. So, okay. So I guess it's time for the meat and potatoes of this week. Boy. And I, you know, I have just the long laundry list of systems we have to get through here. So I guess let's start with Ali. Let's start with Changeling. Talk about Changeling for a little bit. Then we're going to let DJ do about 10 or 20 of his 800 
that he has on the list. Then I'll talk about Fallout for a little bit. And then we'll go back to DJ for the next 10 or 20 he has. And somewhere in there you could do Pathfinder, and somewhere in there I'll do Deadlands. Okay. Um, But, yeah, so, all right, Allie. Alternative RPGs... uh, DJ and I often worship at the altar of D&D. I've noticed. We, we've just bought D&D magic cards. That's uh, true. Convert us. What, Changeling the Lost, how does it stack up? Okay. Changeling the Lost is my favorite RPG. But uh, let, let's get a little bit of an explanation first. Okay. So Worlds of Darkness is the base game. It's basically modern day, oh, there's vampires and ghosts and things like that. We're going to fight them and, you know, let's try not to die. Fun times. Um, Changing the Lost is a splat of that. Instead of playing the Hunters, which is Hunters Vigil, you know, base game, if you're just humans, instead of playing normal people, (laughs) you play Changelings, who were taken by the Fae uh, to Arcadia and somehow made your way back, but changed and different and possibly missing your soul, depending on what system you subscribe to. Um, I love it so much. I, <laughs> it's subtitled as a game of beautiful madness, if that helps you identify the themes at all. Um, but uh, how, how else do I describe it? Well, you, you were going on before about how there are no classes, which oh, just, just boggles yes. my mind. How does this work? Okay, so uh, Changeling works on a point-by system. You don't, you don't roll your stats. You just decide, uh, do you want to be better at social, physical, or mental things? And distribute your points thus. Um, excuse me as I get to the... Uh, <laughs> she has copious notes and copious books in front of her. <laughs> I love this game so much. Okay. So, point by system with stats and also skills uh, between mental, physical, and social. So, uh, if you've noticed, it's not a fighting-based game. So, if you want to make a character who's, say, good at research and their favorite place to be is a library, you can still be useful to a campaign. Or you want, you can still make somebody who's good at fighting and they do that. Or somebody who likes guns and only guns, and that's what they do. You can still succeed in this campaign. My favorite thing about it is the multiple ways to find a solution. And you can be clever about it. It's so much fun. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yes, so Changeling specifically, uh, because you are no longer human, you have lost part of your soul, theoretically, uh, you are sort of part fae. You end up, instead of with a class like D&D, you end up with a seeming and a kith. <laughs> Swear to God. <laughs> There's six seemings, and they're like they're overarching how you present to the world. Uh, there's like a fairest, which are the pretty ones, a darkling, which are the traditional like vampire types, um, et cetera, et cetera. And kiths are specifically things of that. More, more specific for your archetype. They're specializations. Specializations, basically. Um, a seeming has both a blessing and a curse, so a good thing. So darklings will get additions to subterfuge and wits but they'll get minus dice for doing anything in the sunlight. And a kith gives you just a little extra flavor, like a spell to use or something like that. It's tons of fun. So now you say it's not a really combat system. Now, do you mean it's mostly role-play heavy, or do you mean that there is no combat? Because you talked about there's so many different ways to solve problems. Mm-hmm. It, 
It's not, hmm, well, it depends on what kind of game you want to play. You can play a combat-heavy game. There is combat in the game and rules for combat. But you don't have to. Because why would you do that if you don't have to? I mean, that's fair. I can't argue that. Although I must yeah. say, this is very anti-human. There's a lot of anti-human animosity coming from this book. You know, I don't know. I'm on team people here. I don't know how I feel about this. But why would you be a person when you could be a changeling? Right? Exactly. Now, oh, it's so, it's so much fun. Now, a lot of this makes sense because before the pandemic, uh, DJ and, well, the whole, the whole crew, Iggy and AJ, Lou and everybody, they came down and they spent a week here in the 1821 studios. Uh, but they assured me in uh, very vivid detail that they were actually kidnapped by the Fae at a Panera Bread. Oh, yeah, it's true. <laughs> so maybe you are a changeling this whole time. Maybe. Are you? <laughs> I'll I never mean, tell. <laughs> you do love playing characters with guns. Oh, my goodness. And you are pretty anti-human, so. <laughs> you aren't necessarily anti-human. Um, <laughs> I do mostly play artificers. Oh, I see. You might prefer a wizened-seeming, then. Mm. Uh, they're the ones who have worked. But uh, now, what of now? Do these seemings? Do they maybe sail? Sail like on a ship? Yeah. Would they? How would else you, do you sail? Would you? Would you say these seemings are naval people? <laughs> <laughs> I see what you're getting at. <laughs> I have two <laughs> giant holes in the side of my mouth that are just gushing blood right now because I've been chewing on the side of my lip this whole time, trying not to just derail us. <laughs> Trying to be good. You could be if, say, the true fae that took you, your keeper, uh, had a ship or something like that. Had you work on a ship in Arcadia or the Feylands. Mm. And, and let's say this changeling was male. Okay. And they were on the sea. Yeah. They might be called a seam man. I feel like they would be called a, called a sailor. Uh <laughs> There, there are a lot of uh, really heavy S&M overtones with this, though. You get kidnapped and abused by a keeper who then brings you back but keeps part of you, and you have to serve your keeper. I mean, like, okay, now, I... I it's you, true. You, you DM them. Well, they don't, they don't call it DMing. What do they, what do they call it for this? Oh, uh, you aren't a dungeon master. You're a storyteller. Right, okay, so you storytell this. Now, I assume you do this sort of in knee-high leather boots... I've seen some of your corsets, so I'm sure you've got that cinched up tight. And I mostly do it over the internet in my pajamas. <laughs> that's that's a whole other set of websites. We're not getting into that. Uh, it's so, so much of a letdown. Yeah, kind of, actually. <laughs> so another aspect of the game is the clarity system. Um, particularly with World of Darkness, there's all this, like, if you're a human, you have morality. If you're a vampire, it's something with bloodlust. I haven't really played vampire. It's a good game. Just don't have anybody to DM it. Um, but in Changeling, it's a clarity system. So uh, it's basically how sane you are as you get higher and higher. Uh, well, uh, yeah, no, higher and higher clarity. Uh, you begin to see the hedge, which is the in-between space between reality and Arcadia, um, you begin to see it in everyday life and things like that. So uh, if you reach clarity 10, which is the max you can be, yeah, it's still clarity 10, no matter how many times I look at it. Um, 
Oh, no, Clarity 10 is the good one. You, that's better. Sorry, if you reach Clarity 1, you uh, begin to see it everywhere. And I like to play that I take care, control of your character then because they've lost... Again, she's a dominatrix. <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but you've lost all control of your character. Um, other people play it differently, but uh, that's always fun. As a historian, I must interject here and just make note of the fact that uh, multiple levels of clarity, although I believe it's 14 and not 10, is the tenet that Scientology is built on. Really? Cool. Yes, cool, 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 like cool, cool. word for word. <laughs> well, thanks for introducing I've... Scientology to the podcast. Damn it, Allie. <laughs> um, I've never studied Scientology. I know nothing about it. <laughs> uh, I have only studied it purely from the historical perspective because I do have an insane fascination with cults. I'll be the first to admit it. Uh, but yeah, no, there are 14 levels, and I believe it's level 10 or 11 is when you get to know about Xenu and all that good stuff. So, uh, But all right, uh, DJ, I know you've got about 700 you have to go through. So uh, hit us with two or three here. Yeah, no, I, um, I'm a sucker for collecting like small... You could have just stopped at collecting. I mean, I, I am too. No judgment. I'm the same way. But, but. Collecting small RPG systems that I hope to someday play. So the first one I pulled uh, is called Seven Wonders, and it's a single hardcover book. Uh, and it's uh, put out uh, by Pelgrane uh, Press. And the idea of Seven Wonders is it's actually seven different games, and you can pick one and play it as like a like a one-off. And uh, I've only played one of the seven. I've played Before the Storm. Uh, but that, to read it just straight from the back of the book, because it's the best way to describe each of these games, have you ever wondered how the children from Narnia coped with adulthood, what it's like to voyage into a black hole, why dystopias rise and fall, who protects your home when you're not looking, what you would sacrifice to protect your family, what heroes talk about on the eve of a decisive battle, and what happens in your village when your heroes are away. That sounds fantastic. They're amazing. Uh, I've played Before the Storm, which is the, it's the, you're playing like epic level heroes on the eve of their final battle, and none of you can sleep. Oh no. So you stay up uh, that night reminiscing and talking, and it's built off of like a 52-card system, and you like dole cards out, and then like I, I think it's like red is good for you if you have it in your hand, and black is bad. Oh. And uh, you trade cards back and forth with each other, and it, it's all based on like how your interactions go. And so you're you immediately are playing these like epic level characters, but you're building your backstory and why you're there and what the threat of the world is over time. Uh, and there is, uh, th- there's generally like a, a GM, but the GM for this game can, can also play because their duties are really just to keep the conversation going. And at the end of it, the final battle happens. And based on the cards that you have in your hand, determines whether or not you live oh no yeah and uh before the storm was the birth of rabbit mark yes it was yeah 
my my favorite D and D character to play. Uh, oh, he is he is my adorable rabbit folk slash gnome slash artificer slash uh, everything. That's so nice. yeah, that's seven wonders. Uh, I I intend to play the other six. I really want to play the Narnia one. Yeah, that that sounds that sounds like the themes I like. Yeah, right. <laughs> I have never heard somebody squee in silence over here. She just kept covering her mouth to not squee audibly into the mic as she kept reading that description over and over again. Yeah, no, I wrote it down. I'm going to get that game. I, I mean, I, I've never seen someone physically fangirl that hard before. <laughs> so good. That's excellent. Uh, I'll share one more before I throw it to you, Mark. Um, uh, this one is, uh, I have like half a dozen systems that are all based on Powered by the Apocalypse. Uh, so this is a PBTA called Threadbare. Uh, it is, it's considered a stitch punk RPG. And stitch punk? Yeah, yeah, go on, explain. Um, the concept of Threadbare is, uh, you are playing toys, uh, who come to life. Oh and it's kind of dystopic. You're trying to, like, keep each other uh, from falling into disrepair and trying to survive, like, something, you know, whatever it happens to be. You, are, you play a jury-rigged toy in a broken world, and uh, entropy is a constant danger. So it's, oh, no. it, it's basically Sid's bedroom from Toy Story. I, you know, I was literally just about to say, like, I'm a pretty bleak person. I'm a pretty glass half empty individual. I enjoy. I root for the villain. I'm down with the good. But I, even I, Toy Story is just an absolute good. Why you got to go and make that an evil thing? Come on now. <laughs> I mean, there are some lines even I won't cross. No, no, that's your playing in Toy Story. <laughs> God damn it! Anyway. All right, Mark, give us one of yours. Well. Uh, Back in, I think it was season two, we talked about, uh, in our potpourri episode, we were talking about, quote-unquote, you know, Gaiden games, and, you know, that that's a good game, but it's not a good X game. And I was going off about the Fallout series, and uh, I was talking about Fallout 76, and Fallout 3, and Fallout 4, and yada, yada, yada. And I had mentioned at that point that I had never, I've played every single Fallout entry... But I had never played the RPG. Well, that the book was just you know too hard to get. It was this and that. Well, unbeknownst to me, as we were recording that, they had reprinted the book, sort of. Uh, there is a new Fallout RPG out. I have the book sitting right here in front of me, and it takes a lot of the themes from the first one, but it also ties in with the minis game, uh, Wasteland Warfare. So to play it correctly, you really sort of need both because you need the uh, you're supposed to have the maps and you need the distance markers and more importantly, you need the D20 because the Fallout RPG is a D20 system, but it's a custom D20 system. Uh, you roll several different dice that are different colors and the different colors are for different things. Some are for attacks, some are for skill checks, some are just general rolls. And they only have numbers one to 10. And then the other 10 sides are symbols. And depending on what the symbols are, there's like a Nuka-Cola bottle, there's an explosion, there's something else. Depending on what you roll, you get a number, and then you get 
X number of different symbols, and then you have to look in the book to tell you what they all mean. The weird thing about it that I don't like is that a 10 is a critical miss, and a 1 is a crit hit. It's opposite numbers. Uh, It's very strange. Uh, the, The DM is the overseer, because it's Fallout. It's, of course, set in the Fallout universe, and they give you basically all the major sites to base your campaign around from all the different games. So you have, uh, you know, uh, the NCR, you have New Vegas, you have different locales from Caesar's Legion, uh, Washington, D.C. from Fallout 3, uh, Appalachia from Fallout 76, different locations around Boston from Fallout 4. They even throw in a few Midwestern locations from Fallout Tactics and Brotherhood of Steel. And you can decide, you know, much like D&D, you can decide to be good, you can decide to be bad. Uh, Generally, the campaigns revolve around a settlement because it's still big on the 76 and Fallout 4 settlement system. There's a whole, there's pages and pages and pages and pages because this is actually one of the few RPGs I know of you could play single player. And they're based around a settlement, and you get so many points, and you could build a settlement, and you can add different things. And then depending on certain dice rules, you may get attacked, and whether or not you survive, your settlement survives the attack. Like even if you're away, even if you're playing a normal game, like let's say uh, Ali and I are playing, and DJ's the overseer. Okay, we're off at a Red Rocket gas station, and we're scavenging for things. Oh, well, your settlement might be attacked. We're going to roll this. Did you do enough? Before, because you guys aren't there, you can't defend it. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, you did enough. Oh no! Well, you know, ten of your settlers are dead now, and you know the world's set back fifteen years. Right. It's kind of fun. Uh, I don't like the fact that you kind of need both games to play it right. I mean, you don't. You could get away with some more theater of the mind stuff, but you you really need a lot of the rule books and things from the minis game to fall back on. That sort of takes the place of a lot of the D and D side books and the the modules. Is I mean the the starter set for the minis game, I think, had four or five rule books in it. And it actually gives you sort of a campaign notebook in the back so you can keep... Because that is the one fun thing. Fallout, the game, is an RPG, the video game. So because of this, the idea is it carries on. You're never really supposed to retire a character. You're supposed to keep going and keep going and keep going. So you have this campaign notebook that you fill out as you go until you either die or you get bored. I've only experimented with it a little bit. I like it. Um, I mostly bought it just to play it a little bit to say that I've played every single Fallout game, which I have now. Uh, I have the minis game, but that's more because I am a dragon. I need to collect a giant horde of minis and just lay on it. Uh, Most of them are painted. I have a few of them upstairs that aren't, and the wife's like, you've got more minis on Kickstarter. Are you going to finish these, or how's this going to work? But I'll get to it eventually. Uh, But no, overall, I like it. If you're a fan of the game... There's some really deep cuts in the lore, especially from the earlier games, which I know weren't that popular, the computer games that a lot of people might not have played. It's a great way to catch up on all that and really understand the universe at large. And it really does make you feel like the Fallout world is a giant living, breathing world. I mean, the games, one of the big criticisms is, you know, they're so isolated. You're only in New Vegas. You're only in Boston. You're only in the Wasteland. The whole world's going on around you. You don't really know what's going on. In the RPG, it really does give you that sense of this is a living, breathing world. Wow. All right. So now we're going to, now Ali's going to tell us about the only other, you know, I'm going to, I talked about Fallout. I'm going to talk about the other RPG that I've 
played somewhat extensively later. But Ali's going to talk about the only other non-D&D game that I really have any, any play with. And it's, it's basically D&D light. It's, it's uh, hipster D&D. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about uh, Pathfinder. Do you like D&D? Do the rules confuse you? May I introduce to you Pathfinder First Edition? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so much easier than D&D. It's, it's still combat-based. It still has a lot of the same classes. So, you know, you have paladins and clerics. You know what they do. Um, it has a different setting. So, oh, flavor. Uh, but it's so much easier for combat. Uh, oh, gosh. It's so much easier to find out what to do with your characters as well. But I'll get into, that's, I'll get into that. Okay. Pathfinder SRD is God's gift to the world. You cannot tell me otherwise. You have a very unjust and hateful God. You have an Old Testament God. Have you ever seen the SRD? <laughs> no, you haven't. You cannot tell me that it, it's not amazing. It's got just a basic search, search system, but it's got a search system, unlike D&D. I always have such a hard time figuring out what to do with my characters and where they're going and what feats they can get it's very confusing. How did you get a soapbox into the studio? <laughs> now, get now, off of I, I, I know Mark's crabbing all over you here, Allie, but I do <laughs> need to tell you before you go any further, my first RPG experiences were playing Pathfinder. Really? And I agree with you that the SRD is amazing. It's so good. I, and it's so good to get people into it, too, because mm-hmm. you don't have to read the entire rule book. You don't have to purchase a book. You could just, oh, go on this, look at the base systems and the, the base classes, and pick from there. And it's so much easier to get people into it, especially if it's their first campaign, things like that. Also, it has the Magus class, which is the best class, and you cannot change my mind. Um. <laughs> Extrapolate. Uh, well, it's basically wizard plus fighter. You can cast spells through your sword. I... What else do you need? Uh, my favorite class to play in Pathfinder is the uh, Arcane Archer. Oh, okay. Okay, that's fair. Uh, it, it was, <laughs> it's something that I, I... It's the one major complaint I have about D&D is that I... With, with some, some exceptions, I feel like Pathfinder has much better subclasses. Yeah. Because there's like a definitely. thousand of them. Well, yeah, instead of, like, D&D, where it's like, ooh, here is your path, here's the three choices you can take, Pathfinder's like, oh, here, have a bunch of them. Pick what you want. And if you take a level in this and two levels in that, you can get, you unlock this class that you can take. Which is so much easier than whatever D&D has going on. (laughs) (laughs) Now, see, it's funny. See, I've played Pathfinder, and I actually don't hate it, as much as I'm sitting here playing the villain as I usually do and just (laughs) shitting all over you. I actually don't hate Pathfinder. And it is actually very appropriate that we are uh, talking about Pathfinder because it is very bougie. Because <laughs> what happened was we had D&D 3.5, which I played for years. As, I mean, a lot of people did. I mean, that was yeah. probably, with the possible exception of 5e now, I think 3.5 was probably the one 
the most sold. You know, they sold the most books. It was the most played version. Mm. And then they went to fourth edition. And look, um, fourth edition sucks. Nobody's ever going to defend fourth edition. No. Um, you know, we don't usually yuck any yums here on uh, the Whit Whiskey. But if you like fourth edition, you're just wrong. And who hurt you and what happened? Um, you know, seek counseling. You know, there's that better help. Call them. Uh, and so because of that, a bunch of bougie hipsters are like, fourth edition sucks. We're just going to keep playing 3.5, and we're going to make 3.5.5, which is Pathfinder. <laughs> and uh, which there's nothing wrong with that. I said I played 3.5 for years. 3.5 is better than fourth edition in every shape, way, or form. But having played fifth for as long as I have now and being the better part of 15 years older, 20 years older from when I played 3.5. I'm old. I want less shit. I don't want to remember. See, you're sitting here. Oh, Pathfinder's so easy. I'm like, no, not compared to 5th edition. It really isn't. There's so many less choices in 5th edition. Yes, less choice is good. I will say, though, the best part of 5th edition are all the non-Wizard of the Coast things that people are creating. That's fair. Yeah, all, all the extra like campaigns and settings and things like that, they're oh, fascinating. Man. Yeah, I bought uh, campaigns and supplements. I, I bought uh, yeah. a book on additional rules for alchemy. Ooh. Uh, I bought uh, a supplement that added to the list of magical tattoos. Oh, that's always fun. Um, uh, and I recently funded one on Kickstarter. It's the most excited I've ever been for uh, an RPG supplement. It's called Fat Magic. And it's a full campaign supplement uh, rule book of uh, campaign settings, subclasses, spells, and magic items all to do with food. Oh, no. It's like you can make magical chefs. Oh my god. That's fat magic, you said? Yeah, fat magic on Kickstarter. Excuse me, that's going on my list. I mean, I do have a few uh, trick decks and magician kits up there. I could probably make that gimmick, fat magic. Yeah? I could probably tour under that name. I feel like I could break your system. You probably could. Probably. Uh, can I cut you in half, though? You know, we do that gimmick where we put you in the box, <laughs> but there's an extra set of legs. Maybe. You could, you could be my assistant. That. Because we know the wife won't do it. She'd be like, no, just get the fuck out of here. Just, I she doesn't have, have any patience for your bullshit. <laughs> no. Uh, I, I've, I played enough Pathfinder that I played three full characters in Pathfinder. I played uh, a ranger heading into Arcane Archer. I played a gunslinger. And I played yep. a... Um, I played uh, a lightning sorceress. Ooh. Uh, and I... The, my only real complaint about Pathfinder is how some of... Th there is an inconsistency in the classes. Uh, because I loved playing Ranger, and I thought it was super flexible. I played a Gunslinger, and it was so boring. The options really? were so limiting. And maybe there's, like, an, another version, or maybe they've updated it since then. But, like, I could do, like, two things. And that was... Oh, no. I, I could shoot and I could dodge. I was basically McCree from Overwatch. Oh my god! <laughs> and then my sorceress was amazing. So many options and like I, I had mechanics where she was like possessed by a lightning elemental and was slowly going insane. And there, <laughs> there was like mechanics for that. Like there was just some crazy shit that you could do. So like I do feel like 
what fifth edition has done nicely is made the classes unique and and, and that they're they're fun to play in their lanes. Like they're I can make a fighter and I can make that interesting. I made a gunslinger and I, I played that guy for like a year and I just got so bored. Oh my god. I'm not gonna lie, I have never played a gunslinger. I, I think if we were a lot higher level, there were some cooler things I could do. And I ended up being able to, like, whip pistols out and shoot them very quickly. But there just wasn't a lot of, like, every level up was, like, you can shoot another bullet. You can <laughs> dodge better. The end. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. <laughs> Especially when, like, Magus exists. Um. <laughs> Shameless plug for Magus. <laughs> Another one. Mark, add it to the list. <laughs> Play Amagus, you won't regret it. Um, but that's that's fair. That's fair. All right, hit us with two more. Okay. Uh, one is called The Quiet Year. Uh, this isn't powered by Apocalypse or anything. Uh, it's actually... Um, uh, there's an actual Play podcast that I listen to uh, I'm not going to plug here, but they they started their uh, latest season by playing The Quiet Year. And The Quiet Year is a map drawing game. Oh, no. Uh, and you're meant to play The Quiet Year before you actually play a different game. And it can be plugged into anything. Um, but it's like the ultimate starter kit for homebrew. Uh, and the idea of the quiet year, it's based on a set of 52 cards again, but the cards are custom. Um, and instead of the four, like, bicycle suits, they're split into the four seasons of a year. And it's, it's spring, summer, fall, winter. And at some point in the winter, uh, the Frost Shepherds show up, the game ends, and some apop- apocalyptic or uh, world-changing event happens. Uh, but throughout oh. the quiet year, you have a map, uh, an actual map that you're drawing on. And uh, whoever is playing the quiet year in the game, that there's kind of a GM who basically sets the stage for, for what's happening in the world. So, you know, I, it, they set some of the big rules, you know, magic or no magic, tech or no tech, uh, you know, fey or no fey. Magic creatures, no magic creatures, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, And then whoever's at the table, there's no more GM, and the four of you or the five of you or the six of you, uh, you go in a round, and when it's your turn, you pick a card, you read the prompt on the card, and it might be, you know, uh, maybe there's a community, and it's the whole point of the quiet years, you're supposed to be a community, and it says, you know, like, uh, somebody new comes to the community, uh, who are they and what do they want? Or someone leaves the community, uh, what causes them to leave? Mm. And then you have to draw something physical on the map to indicate that decision. And then you get to do something at the end of your turn, which is, like, make a discovery, start a project, um, or hold a discussion. And then it goes to the next person, and they draw a card. And when you're done with this, with spring, it goes into summer, summer into fall, fall into winter. And then at some point in the winter, because you shuffle each season before you start drawing, at some point in the winter, the game ends, that's it. And then you 
you've got a world and you all pick a system, create characters, and go into that world to play the game. That sounds excellent. It's like, yeah. really great for world building. It comes in this little burlap sack with some dice and an instruction booklet and all the cards, and it's it's amazing. That's such a good way to get people like engaged in the world you're going to be playing in. Right? Understanding the, the rules and everything. I, I ran a homebrew game for a while, and I had a really hard time populating the world, and I feel like if I had known about the quiet year, I would have done that. Yeah. That's fair. Oh, no. That sounds excellent. <laughs> yeah, that's on my list, too. <laughs> Just going to buy everything I was going to say, your this. list is getting pretty long, just yeah. here in the last hour. Yeah, it is. Good thing payday was, like, last week. Uh, the, the second one I'll do is Thirsty Sword Lesbians. Yeah, I'm the odd man out here. I think I'm the only one that didn't back this on Kickstarter. Uh, I just, I love the idea, and I've gone through it. The, the book is just so pretty. It's mm. it's just fucking queer and representative and amazing, and it's got, like, mechanics for, like, flirting and mechanics for romance and mechanics for sword fighting, and... Uh, and what more could you want? I mean, it's just... I, yeah, exa- I don't even need to describe much more. It's just you you want represent- representation in, in your, your uh, TTRPG. Get Thirsty Sword Lesbians. It's amazing. <laughs> All right, Mark, what's your last one? All right, I know we're, we're running a little long on time here. Surprise, surprise. Uh, <laughs> whenever we do an episode on RPGs, we always go long. Uh, during one of our uh, fandom episodes, or maybe it was one of our overrated, underrated episodes, I talked at length about Deadlands and Deadlands Doomtown, but I want to spin on to the one that I probably played the most, and that was the spinoff Deadlands Hell on Earth. And if you're of a certain age, uh, so, you know, not Allie, because she's still a kid, I but you might remember the Inquest magazines that were sort of the big uh, card game and tabletop RPG review magazine that was I think it actually was owned by Wizards of the Coast it was probably just propaganda but it was being printed every month I had a subscription and they reviewed Deadlands Hell on Earth and they said basically do you like the Old West do you like Mad Max smash the two of them together and you're kind of close (laughs) so basically the setting for Deadlands Hell on Earth is the Civil War never ended so the United States is divided into two countries and there is a Berlin Wall type divide across the Mason-Dixon line, all the way from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Meanwhile, uh, the, it's about 200 years into the future from the Civil War, so it's basically about now. It's like 2050, 2060, because, of course, Civil War was 1862. You had 200 years, give or take. You're in the 2050s. Uh, the Native Americans who have been ravaged during the uh, real you know, uh, frontier wars, the Indian Wars, and then the Civil War... They are called the Reckoners on this earth. And what the Reckoners do is they use the Battle of Gettysburg as the point, and that's the point where it splits from our timeline. And basically, Gettysburg opens up a portal to hell, essentially. And because there's so much death, so much destruction in one area, uh, after that, bodies don't necessarily die. They turn into zombies. So uh, he got shot a few years later, but Lincoln is still alive. He's just a zombie president wandering around doing crazy things. And the original Deadlands is based on uh, ghost rock, which is basically coal that has human souls trapped in it. And, of course, we figure out that, you know, souls of the damned are a tremendous energy source. 
Well, in Deadlands, Hell, and Earth, the Reckoners give technology to both the USA and the CSA to make atom bombs out of ghost rock. So basically, imagine a regular nuclear explosion, but inside the mushroom cloud, it's just a maelstorm of damned souls ripping you to shreds. So, of course, the world ends, and it basically falls back to old-timey frontier communities just trying to scrap and survive, so you get your classic lawmen, you get your cowboys, but then it has some fun classes. Uh, there's a librarian, there's a doomsayer, which is, they basically worship ghost rock and atom bombs. There's a martial artist class, DJ. Hell yeah! yeah. <laughs> uh, and be, you know, a bunch of other fun ones, toxic shamans and Templars and different things. And being that it's based off of Deadlands, it's based off the fact that Hoyle, who, you know, you might, if you go to a, just a grocery store and you buy one of the $2, $3 deck of cards that are in the, in the grocery store, they say Hoyle on the back. Well, uh, Hoyle was the guy in Deadlands lore that discovered magic because magic is contained in playing cards. <laughs> and so in addition to playing it, every player needs a deck of 52. And when you cast a spell or do an action, you draw a card. And depending on the suit and the number, that gives you your success or your failure. And uh, the wizards in Deadlands are called hucksters, and they're basically magicians. Basically, that was pretty much where I got the idea for Callaway from. He was oh, a magician nice. who actually was a wizard, but you know, use it as cover. That's right out of Deadlands. Magicians actually perform magic. One of the bosses you can get is actually Doc Holliday, and he's like a level. He's like a challenge rating 30, 35 huckster, just sitting in Tombstone playing poker and it's like yeah you want to go challenge him and just die instantly go ahead have fun uh so deadlands doomtown it's out of print unfortunately uh but the pdf i believe is public domain you can find it pretty easily it is just such a fun game if you're into old westerns if you're into post-apocalyptic stuff either one of them especially if you like them together and the the card draw system is just really kind of cool it's a fun way to play a game amazing do you have any more, or are we done? I do. I do. I have two more. Oh, no. Because <laughs> this doesn't even scratch the surface of the systems I've collected. No, I know. That's the scary part. Like, you have an entire shelf of just RPG books. It's kind of terrifying. Oh, my God, uh, that's amazing. Uh, there is a system I'm not going to talk about, but you should look up The Beast. And that's all I'm going <laughs> to say. The first rule, you're in love with The Beast, but you're, you're not telling anyone. You can't talk about it. Yeah. Uh, oh? So, oh, yeah, you would love to. Oh, I'll show you the beast later. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, not safe for work. Um, oh, okay, it's on my list. It, it's uh, an Amanda game. Let's just put it that way. Oh, my God. We uh, love you, Amanda. So the, the, the penultimate system I'm going to share today is called Wander Home. Uh, did either of you grow up reading the Redwall books? I have no idea what that is. I watched the TV show. Okay. So Redwall was a series of... Uh, like young adult books by uh, Brian Jakes, and there's like twenty or thirty books in the series. Like it's just, there's so many, and the whole concept was it was a, a fantasy world of anthropomorphic animals, and, th and that's kind of the thing. Uh, and th there's different like classifications of animals, like they're like warrior mice and badgers who live alone in a dormant volcano, and cats are evil. Oh. <laughs> Boom. Um, and Wander Home is basically like a Redwall RPG. Like you play as an anthropomorphic. They call them kith. 
but an anthropomorphic animal. You can communicate, and uh, but the, the core concept of Wander Home is that there is no combat. There are no rules for combat. There can be no combat in Wander Home. It is a pure role-play system. Okay, uh, yeah, that's going on my list. And the whole idea of Wander Home is you're out on an adventure. Uh, you might be trying to get home. You might be leaving home. You might be exploring things. But it posits, like, because at the beginning of every Redwall book, it was always, like, describing the setting, and it was these beautiful verdant fields and these these uh, majestic forests. And it posits, like, what if you just never got to the conflict? What if you just never got to, like, the war and the fighting? What if the field stayed peaceful and the forest stayed majestic? So, I mean, this is literally the way we play D&D. I mean, AJ has an encounter planned for us for, like, session three, and two and a half years later, we haven't got there yet. Right? Because we're running a bar. <laughs> Sounds like a great game, though. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it should be amazing, and I need to find the right group of people who will play it with me. The last Hello. one is my favorite system of all times. It's a shameless plug uh, because some dear friends put this together. Uh, it's another Powered by the Apocalypse system. Uh, are either of you anime fans? Yes. <laughs> I, I've been known to dabble in Japanimation from time to time. <laughs> yes, he is. Uh, so I believe I mentioned this briefly on a f- previous episode, but this system is called Super Destiny High School Rumble. Oh, my God. And <laughs> the core concept of Super Destiny High School Rumble is uh, it, it came out of a chat with friends after we, we played a one-shot together, and we wanted to play an anime RPG that just didn't exist. And so my friends, being incredibly artistic, went you know what, we're going to make this. And a year later, it existed. Uh, And so you are, um, you're playing anime high schoolers who, uh, basically the core concept of Super Destiny is that you, when you start the game, you pick two classes. You pick a student class and a destiny class. And your student classes are things like, um, you know, like Red Oni and Blue Oni characters, right? Like you've got your main character, you've got the idol, you've got uh, my personal favorite, the adorable. Um, (laughs) And uh, there's all sorts of, each of the student classes has their own uh, skills that you can level up and acquire. Um, uh, The the adorable has... uh, uh, the ability to be carried, and he can, uh, he or she can give uh, advantage forward to the person who is carrying them, uh, or the idol who can um, uh, gather a crowd, you know, things like that. And then your destiny classes are uh, like your night hunter, or your demon slayer, or uh, time traveler, uh, creature summoner, or secret monster, and they're all. Basically, it, it's meant to simulate as many D&D tropes as possible. Uh, and if you wanted to, you could play a Sentai game. Oh, my God. Uh, you could play oh all Night Rangers and play Sentai. You could play Magical Girls by doing the Magical Witch class. Um, oh, no. You can play uh, Pokemon by just playing Creature Summoner. So there's just... 
Uh, there's some really crazy shit you can do. Uh, and the idea is um, prom is tomorrow, today's a math test, and an alien invasion and your powers have only just returned after the Battle of the Band trip. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and it's got some crazy stuff. Like, uh, instead of, like, strength and dex, it's got um, hot and cool. Uh, there's, there's a charisma stat. Um, that there are limit breaks in the game <laughs> that you can earn and enact, and they're crazy. Uh, yeah, so the, it, it's over the top, and it lends itself to really amazing drama. So, uh, Super Destiny High School Rumble, if you get a chance. That sounds like so much fun. It's um, it, it's some of the most fun I've ever had RPing, and I the character my main character that I like to play is one of the best characters I've ever created. Yeah, she's named, uh, her name is Yuki. She's a creature summoner slash reincarnated princess. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh-huh. Um, and she plays an electric shamisen because they're all at a music school together. Oh my God, of course. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, th- there's just so many good things. But yeah, alternative RPGs. Yes. Break this- away from D&D. Do something new. I will actually second that. I mean, I, I, I know I play a lot of D&D. It's currently the only tabletop RPG I'm currently playing, but there are a lot of good systems out there. I mean, maybe don't go full crack addict like DJ, <laughs> but definitely get out, of your, uh, get out of your comfort zone a little bit. It's like whiskey. Get out of your comfort zone a little bit. I didn't even talk about Urban Shadows. or. Oh, dun- hey, that's that one, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or Dungeon World or Apocalypse World. <laughs> You know, it brings a tear to my libertarian eye. Free market economy is strong. You're backing all these games. Private investment makes me happy. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening. Thank you, Allie, for joining us this week. Thank you for inviting me. It was very fun. Yeah, see, and you were all scared. I was, but I've been drinking, so. You have, (laughs) and that helps. Uh, if you liked this episode, uh, we're, we ask for, um, you know, if you can take the time and go give us that rating on iTunes, sa- uh, pre-save us on Spotify. That definitely helps us get up in the, the charts. Uh, we're, we've got a website. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We're on Podbean. We're on Listen Notes. Uh, you can find us on uh, Gmail at the Whitney Whiskey Cast at gmail.com. There uh, is an E in whiskey, and uh, <laughs> there's no H in wit, despite what Mark may tell you later. <laughs> hey, I reviewed a whiskey with no E today. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. It, I'm it, leaning into the gimmick hard. You are. Um, you can find us at thewitandwhiskeycast.com where we post some of our photos. We occasionally do uh, cocktail recipes and, and review uh, weird things. Uh, so that's a fun place to find us. Uh, we release here in your ears uh, every Friday morning, uh, and usually by by about noon we're we're out everywhere. We found a couple lag behind, but uh, we're working on on narrowing that that time gap down. Uh, it's wh- all who do. Wh- what are we gonna do next week? Well, okay. Now, we generally try not to make this podcast topical for obvious reasons. We want it to age well. We want it to go into the pantheon of podcasting history. But, you know, I'm just, I'm all jazzed up, and it's something, you know, it's a recent thing, but it's something you and I both have a lot of experience in. It's something you and I can talk a lot about. Do we want to do two 
games in a row. Do we want to do magic and whiskey? Oh my god, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, gee, I think that was the easiest conversation we've. Had. We usually sit here and bicker for two or three minutes. <laughs> I guess this is where we make up time because the episode ran long, but okay, well, there you go. <laughs> magic and whiskey. And then after magic and whiskey, folks, hear us talk about prohibition towards the end of the season because uh, we, we've promised you some episodes on it. Uh, we both have very strong fucking opinions. We, we do. I think, uh, you know, we, we have a couple outlines already going. We've started doing research. I think that might be our first three-parter. Yeah. There is so much fucking there. We're going to try to keep it to a two-parter, but we may leak into a third tangential topic that will kind of evolve. I hate it when we get episodic leakage. Gross. It's... Why you got to be gross? <laughs> yeah, why you got to be gross? Anywho, Don't you start. <laughs> Anywho. Uh, thank you to Nuno Henry Silva for our intro and outro music. Of course, we love you, buddy. We do love you, Nuno. Uh, we're going to send you to a SoundCloud in our show notes. Uh, and uh, Make sure to go check out that book of his. I, I uh, heard rumblings that there might be another one in the near future. Ooh, inside scoop. Inside hey. scoop. Hey, uh, book. Yes, yes our, our, our wonderful uh, musician friend, Nuno, who does the intro and the outro, he has a, a nice little book of wisdom that is on Amazon. Uh, I'll, I'll share you the link. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, maybe I can start including that in our show notes, too. Might as well, it ain't gonna hurt. But until next week when we start talking about magic and you hear all of our opinions. And I have many. <laughs> Mana burn is a thing. It's coming back. Oh man. <laughs> but until next week. Salut. Cheers. Cheers.